John Greenwood is our next speaker. He's going to talk about ECMO in the emergency department with a big question mark after it. He is a clinical instructor at the Department of Emergency Medicine at University of Maryland School of Medicine. This is an all-Maryland show this morning in this track, folks. Just get used to it. Uh, they're taking over the world. Uh, he did his undergraduate work at Rutgers. He did his medical school at Jefferson. Yeah, that's where I did my residency. And uh, then his residency at University of Maryland, where he stayed on to do a faculty development fellowship. He is the Robert J. Doherty Exemplary Teaching Resident Award recipient. He has had numerous posters, presentations, and podcasts. But the thing that I want to point out is he is a member of the Hobart Amory Hare Medical Honors Society. And if you know anything about medicine in Philadelphia, you know the place of Hobart Amory Hare. And if you know anything about college hockey or college football, you know about Hobart Amory Hare's nephew, Hobie Baker, who is also from Philadelphia and one of the most amazing athletes who ever lived, named after his uncle who delivered him, uh, Hobart Amory Hare. Uh, Now, you may not have known about the Hobie Baker connection. No, I did not. Yeah. But Hobie Baker is buried in Balakinwood, about two miles from my house. And every Memorial Day, I go visit Hobie Baker's grave. Seriously. Seriously. So uh, this is Dr. Greenwood to talk about ECMO in the ED with a big question mark. Well, thank you, everyone, for uh, having me today. It's absolutely a pleasure and an honor to be here and speak to you about a Uh, interesting topic. This is something that has generated a lot of controversy, not only in the emergency medicine literature, but the critical care literature as well, in terms of when we should be considering ECMO downstairs, why, and what patients would it be beneficial. So, in full disclosure, I have no conflicts of interest. I do not make money from anyone other than the University of Maryland, thankfully. And Um, We're going to start today just with some objectives, and the things I want you to walk away from this lecture are basically to, one, have a foundation of understanding about what ECMO is, the different types of ECMO, and for what patients you should consider these different types of ECMO in. Uh, The next objective is what we're going to spend a bulk of the time talking about, which is which patients in cardiogenic shock, refractory cardiogenic shock, or cardiac arrest could potentially benefit from a trial on ECMO. The last objective is essentially, how can we set this up so when we go home on my next shift, is it possible that we could do this in our emergency department? And we're going to briefly touch upon a couple of different ways that you can hopefully go home and maybe set this up for your shop. So i first like to start out with a quote. And this was something that was said to me by a physician and a, a mentor of mine Uh, Dr. Daniel Herr. He runs the CTICU up at University of Maryland. And one day we were sitting at a table talking about a few patients that we were managing and that they were on ECMO. And he looked me straight in the eye and said, John, nobody should die in the hospital without a trial of ECMO. And I think when he said that, my eyes got huge and my head spun around like the Beetlejuice guy. And I was just like, this guy's off his melon. He's lost his mind. But as we started to manage more of these patients and seeing the outcomes that they've, uh, they've had, I started to drink the Kool-Aid and I started to actually believe that one, this could be possible, and two, this could be something that we could do. And maybe it's not so crazy after all. So let's start off with a little background about out-of-hospital car- out cardiac arrest. 
What do we know about it? Well, we know that return of spontaneous circulation rates are okay. We do a decent job getting back patients who have a cardiac arrest. About 40% will have a return of spontaneous circulation. Of those patients, only a handful of them will actually survive to discharge. So those patients that you do get back probably won't make it out of the hospital. And lastly, what is their status going to be when they leave the hospital? What is their brain going to be like? Are they going to be able to walk? Are they going to be able to talk? And unfortunately, what we do know is that even fewer of these patients will actually walk out of the hospital. And why does this matter? Because the way we manage cardiac arrest sucks. And I say that for a reason. Because taking care of these patients is extremely frustrating. You're at the bedside. Dr. Winters talked about a patient who he had who was coding again and again, constantly losing pulses. And in the back of his mind, in the back of each of our minds, each time we take care of one of these patients, we know that the chances that they're going to walk out of the hospital is slim. And there's actually been a change in the paradigm about how we're thinking about cardiac arrest. And that maybe our goal isn't just to return circulation, but it's actually to restore perfusion, to get the heart beating to the brain as fast as possible. And we know we have a limited amount of time to do this. So we have done some good things that have improved our outcomes. Therapeutic hypothermia, that's a good thing. We know that that improves neurologic outcome. Rapid defibrillation, getting these patients on an AED and shocking them for a cardiac cause of arrest, that's a good thing. Continuous chest compression CPR, something that has revolutionized the way that we practice management of cardiac arrest patients. And then there's rapid PCI. And this is something that, depending on your institution, can be somewhat controversial in getting that cardiac arrest patient to the PCI suite as fast as possible. But why do we do this? Well, in that change of paradigm, in the way we're thinking about cardiac arrest, perhaps if we can get them to this intervention, we can restore circulation and maybe that plaque rupture is actually a reversible cause that, be, that can be considered when thinking about ECMO. So maybe these patients who come in with cardiac arrest should be put on a trial of ECMO that we re can restore perfusion, restore circulation to the brain, and reduce the amount of neurologic devastation. So let's start off again with a general overview of what is mechanical circulatory support. And essentially, what you're doing with ECMO is you're buying time. And why do we need to buy time? Well, for all the reasons that we just stated, that patients die or they don't do well because they don't perfuse their brain, they don't perfuse their kidneys, they don't perfuse the vital end organs that help them carry through their ICU course. So, our goal with ECMO is to provide a bridge or to buy time for potential recovery. So these are patients with potentially a viral myocarditis, with a toxic overdose, whether that's beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, or some other medication that's causing their heart or their pump to fail. Or maybe it's buying them time to actually get to what's called destination therapy. So maybe this is a more portable form of mechanical circulatory support. Maybe this patient has an end-stage cardiomyopathy, ischemic or non-ischemic, and they need an LVAD. Maybe we need to just buy them time to get to the OR. 
And lastly, maybe it's just a bridge to get them to transplant. So patients with failing lungs, failing hearts, maybe they need a new heart. And maybe they're a candidate for transplant. Maybe we don't even know if they're a candidate for transplant, but we want to give them the opportunity. So perhaps that's what ECMO actually does. It gives us more time to make a decision. And ultimately, that's what this is. It's giving us more time to make a decision. Let's start off with VV ECMO and talk about that first before we get into VA ECMO, which is what I want to talk about most today. But it's important that we understand the differences. So the primary goal of VV ECMO is essentially to support pulmonary function. It's to support lung function. It's to help the patient oxygenate or ventilate when they can't on their own. And this can be for a severe pneumonia, for an ARDS. And for the most part, these are going to be patients that we see initially in the ED and that get transferred to the ICU. After a while, they just don't respond to mechanical ventilation. They're not oxygenating well. They have a decreased PF ratio, so they don't oxygenate. They can't clear their acidemia because of their excessive CO2 load, or they have excessively high plateau pressures, and they're not tolerating the vent, despite titrating up their FiO2, titrating up their PEEP, their plateaus are still over 30, and they're tanking. So perhaps a trial of VV ECMO might provide them with a little bit of time for their lungs to heal. And I've heard VV ECMO described as dialysis for the lungs, and I think that's a great way to conceptualize what this therapy is, because essentially what you're doing is just like dialysis, you're providing an extracorporeal support mechanism to provide oxygenation and CO2 removal. This is a patient here with just severe ARDS, and what you'll notice here, and I don't know if you can see it very well, but there's a cannula located in the right IJ that is being placed with, uh, by TEE, which is often done in the ICU, but there is literature out there to suggest that we can do this at the bedside with a TTE by looking at the IVC. So this is not something out of the realm of what we can practice in the emergency department. And essentially, cannulation is done by a, two different approaches. There's a bicable approach, which is done by a dual lumen catheter in the right IJ that provides you direct access to the IVC. And that can be done with the Avalon catheter. And this is something that's massive. It's about 23 French. It's the size of a chest tube that goes in the right IJ and both sucks the blood out, sends it out through a circuit that has a few different things in serial lines. So, it has a circulatory pump, a membrane oxygenator, and it also has a heat exchanger. So as these patients are placed on ECMO, they are anticoagulated with heparin, and essentially what the blood, gets, uh, what the blood does is leaves the body, is oxygenated, and returns. And a lot of times, patients' metabolic requirements, such uh, as for pressors or that sort of thing, will drop immediately once put on pump. And again, this is something that's not out of the realm of what we can do in the emergency department. So this is a patient actually out in Ohio who is on VV ECMO right now. And we have had patients like this here at University of Maryland. And because of with the uh, Avalon catheter, what this does is it allows the patient to still move around, do what they need to do, exercise, not stay in bed, and await for transplant. This is providing them a bridge to transplant. And this young girl actually ended up did getting transplanted, received a new set of lungs, and is doing quite well, according to the case report. 
But I think this is just phenomenal when you walk around on the floors and you're seeing these patients on ECMO walking around the unit doing their daily exercises with PT. It's just unbelievable. So let's get to the meat of this lecture, which is VA ECMO, veno-arterial ECMO. And the role of VA ECMO is essentially to provide not only pulmonary, but cardiac support. So these are patients that have a failing heart or failing lungs that have end-stage cardiomyopathy that need some sort of help with their circulatory system. And they have a failing pump and they need some extra support. And often what this traditionally has been described in is for patients who have refractory cardiogenic shock. So these are the patients like Dr. Winter spoke about earlier. The patient that comes into your emergency department that has numerous arrests, not responding to pressors. You have them on levofed, titrated up. They're not responding. You have to use a second presser. You get them on epi, an epi drip, and they're still not responding. These are patients that may benefit from a trial of VA ECMO. And the window is small, which we'll talk about. Obviously, with VA ECMO, uh, with cardiogenic shock, refractory cardiogenic shock, these are the patients, again, who have an altered mental status, have obvious decreased renal perfusion, uh, or some other form of end organ dysfunction, or are in massive CHF. So here's what we do know. VA ECMO, ECLS, is what it's now called extracorporeal life support improves coronary flow, it improves oxygenation of blood, and it also improves end organ perfusion. And like I said before, once you get the patient on pump, what you'll find is that their pressor and inotropic requirement will drop dramatically because you are providing their circulatory support. These patients need to be anticoagulated. They need to be heparinized. So any patient who has a contraindication to heparin or, or anticoagulation is probably not a candidate for ECMO. And again, these patients will most likely be intubated already, so you're going to provide lung protective ventilation. This is a little controversial because some people will say, well, they're already getting oxygenated. What's the benefit of ventilating the patient? But some believe that with lung, prote lung protective ventilatory strategies, you may save the lungs an extra hit. And one of the other benefits is that with the heat exchanger in the ECMO circuit, you can provide therapeutic hypothermia directly through the circuit itself. So you can dial in a temperature and say, I want this patient at 32 degrees. And what that will do, that heat exchanger will get your patient to target in a reasonable amount of time. And so what did the national organization say about this? Well, the AHA recently came out with a paper in 2012 uh, by Dr. Puera and his colleagues, and they said, well, where does the role for ECMO exists in patients with refractory cardiogenic shock. And what they stated was, and this was a scientific statement based on a limited amount of evidence that we have, is essentially, and you might not be able to see it here, but ECMO, the indication for ECMO lies somewhere between the determination that the patient is refractory cardiogenic shock and the need to get them to one of three arms, which we talked about before, whether that's a bridge to transplant, bridge to destination therapy, or a bridge to a decision. And again, what you're doing is you're buying time. And the European Society of Cardiology and Thoracic Surgeon uh, Group also said the same thing. They, they actually said that there may be a role still for intraaortic balloon pump here prior to initiating ECMO. But again, 
It's as soon as you determine that patient's either in refractory cardiogenic shock or needs to buy time to get to revascularization that these patients may benefit from a trial of ECMO. Even the organization that's based out of Michigan, the ELSO group, has not given any single hemodynamic parameter to say this is when ECMO needs to be initiated. These are all consensus guidelines, all recommendations based on the literature that's out there right now. But again, there is no specific hemodynamic marker that, push, push, that should push you to initiate ECMO. So just to review, the indications for considering the use of ECMO in our patients is going to be this. Number one is a brief downtime. So patients who you know have rest, arrested in a short period of time prior to their arrival to your emergency department. And generally this is described as less than 10 minutes. The second is going to be that the patient has a known or reversible cause. So this can be, like we stated before, toxic overdose, refractory arrhythmia, viral myocarditis, or some other reversible cause of a cardiomyopathy, and maybe that other reversible cause is ACS. And lastly, this is going to be only used as a temporary form of support. This is not a durable form of support, although at University of Maryland, we did have a patient who recently was on ECMO for, I believe it was over 150 days, and uh, survived a transplant and has now been discharged from the hospital. But again, that shouldn't be your goal in the emergency department. Your goal should be thinking, what am I going to get this, can I get this patient uh, through a, a few more days? And again, the reversible cause may just be some sort of coronary artery uh, disruption. So let's talk about a few of the recent literature studies that have been uh, put out there over the past two years. This is a study that's based out of Taiwan, where a lot of the literature comes out of. And we're going to start with in-hospital cardiac arrest, because that's where a lot of this has begun, because there's an obvious known downtime. And this study was done uh, based on uh, looking at patients who had an in-hospital cardiac arrest and who started out with standard therapy, so ACLS therapy. And it was a retrospective study. And what they did was they pulled the two groups and said which patients did better, the patients who were put on ECLS or the patients that received standard CPR therapy. And what they found was quite interesting. What they found was on the Kaplan-Meier curve on the left was that the patients who underwent ECLS had better neurologic outcomes, and not just better, minimal neurologic deficits after starting eCPR. And essentially, the protocol that they had was any patient who had an in-hospital cardiac arrest, arrested for approximately 10 minutes, underwent CPR, and then at the point of 10 minutes, they notified a multi multidisciplinary team of a perfusionist, a nurse, a CT surgeon, and an intensivist, and got the patient on ECMO within 40 minutes unbelievable to get this patient on a pump within 40 minutes, but not impossible. And so what did they see? Well, what they also found was that the number of interventions in the ECLS group skyrocketed. And why is that? Well, because they bought them more time. They got them to the cath lab. They got them to the OR for revascularization. And as you can see, not only was the survival better, but that top line up here the minimal neurologic deficit number was also significantly better. 
This is a second study done by Dr. Chung down in Taiwan, and, and this was done at a massive hospital, over 9,000 inpatients. This hospital's huge. And over six years, they enrolled, uh, I believe it was over 130 patients uh, with a trial of ECMO-assisted CPR. And what they found was a, a large number of these patients had STEMIs, and also a large number had non-STEMIs. But again, patients who did better, had better outcomes, had a reversible cause. And included in that reversible cause is they got these patients to the cath lab. They ballooned their coronary and got them revascularized rapidly. Also, the, number, the patients who did well, fulminant myocarditis, these patients also did very well. Again, a reversible cause. So I want to pause for a thought. And remember the last patient you had undergoing cardiac arrest. You were at the bedside, pumping on the patient's chest, and you're thinking now, I'm going to have to put this guy on ECMO. This is not an easy procedure. This is something that requires a lot of work. It's very dangerous to the providers because these cannulas are huge, approximately 17 to 20 French catheters are going to be going into the groin. And is it actually possible for you to do in the ED? Well, this is just a picture of what the cannulas actually look like. This was done the ipsilateral leg. And essentially the way this works is, it's, uh, we'll go over it with this next study. This was a study that I'm sure all of you are familiar with, but done by Dr. Belezzo. And he actually blew the doors off of the concept that emergency medicine physicians can initiate ECMO in the ED. And what this was was a case series. They took a number of patients who were, had out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and they approached these patients with a staged approach. And they started with an algorithm that was fairly broad. These patients only had to meet the, uh, the um, inclusion criteria of having persistent cardiogenic shock, or were down for a very short period of time. So downtime less than 10 minutes, transport time less than 10 minutes, they considered these patients a candidate for ECMO. And the way they did this was approach this in an algorithmic approach. They started out with simply using the ultrasound to find the femoral artery and the femoral vein and put in A-lines, A-line and uh, central line. And they said they reassessed the patient and they said, does this patient have return of spontaneous circulation? If no, we'll move to the next phase. And the next phase was serial dilations. And this actually requires a little bit of work and technique on your part using a, a scalpel. Because these catheters are so large, they often, in addition to the serial dilation, will require you to open the, the leg and then use past the catheters. Did they get better? Well, if they didn't, let's put them on ECMO. And they actually got about eight patients out of their 18 total to ECLS. And what they found was, out of the eight patients they had, five of them had a full neurologic recovery. And this is astounding. Five of eight patients that they saved had walked out of the hospital in a reasonable amount of time. And of the patients that didn't survive, were only on pump for two days. It bought them time to make a decision. The last study I'd like to talk about is essential, is from Dr. Kagawa, who is out in Japan, a wonderful guy I've had the opportunity to speak with personally. And he recently put out this study that touches upon what, we were, what we've been speaking about. And over the course of five years, he enrolled over 81 patients with ACS who he placed on ECMO. And he actually placed these patients on ECMO in the cath lab. 
but once they got them to the cath lab, they revascularized these patients, and they did this within 45, an average of 45 minutes. This is unbelievable, but again, not something that's impossible. And here's what they found. Their 30-day survival rate, 30%. Not bad considering what we have with our standard techniques right now of about 10%. And what they also found was this, that the favorable neurologic outcome, 24%. So after I read this, I said, I got to find out what this guy's doing. I got to talk to him. And his email address when I saw was actually Kagawa007. I was like, this guy's got to be cool. Let me, give, <laughs> let me give him an email and see, what, see what's been going on since he published this study. And I wrote him an email. I said, hi, Dr. Kagawa. My name's John Greenwood. I'm really interested in ECMO, and we do this a lot at our place. Tell me a little bit about how you've been doing since you published this study. And he wrote back literally within a couple hours and was like, this is so exciting. I want to let you know that we are doing this more in our emergency department now with our bedside ultrasound. We're often finding our, our catheters and placing them with, under bedside ultrasound. This doesn't have to be done in the cath lab. This can be done right in the emergency department. And we're having great success. We're still seeing the same outcomes that we've had with our initial study. And so I thanked him. I said, thank you so much. And I told him I, I loved his email address and uh, asked him if he was a James Bond fan. And he told me he was going to see the, the most recent movie later on in the day. So he was pretty excited about that. Really, a really nice guy. So lastly, I want to spend the last two, three minutes talking about this. This is something as I'm reading the literature, I thought, you know what? This sounds awfully similar to doing a thoracotomy for the traumatic arrest. This is something that has to be done rapidly. And when you decide to do this, you need to commit. This is not something that you can say, oh, well, maybe we'll think. If you're going to do it, put them on the pump fast, just like you're going to make that incision. Do it fast because time is brain, time is kidneys, time is other end organs. All right? And so in addition to that, as with the traumatic arrest, this is a very resource-intensive procedure. This requires a number of physicians, staff, nursing staff, perfusionists. This is going to buy this patient an ICU stay, obviously, but is going to require a lot of outside resources to see this patient through, just like with the traumatic arrest where you're going to do that ED thoracotomy. And lastly, it can be a dangerous procedure to do and you have to always consider your staff and everyone else around you. Because this patient's getting CPR, they're moving around the bed, they're going to be getting cut. This is not something that is quite easily done. So you need to take this into consideration whenever you're considering potentially starting this patient on ECMO. However, if this is a young patient or relatively healthy patient with minimal comorbidities, they don't have cancer, they don't have any intracranial a tumor or, any, or um, anything that would cause a contraindication to anticoagulation, something that you think, maybe I can save this patient, you may actually save a life. So cons, obviously, we just talked about. Cons are obviously cost. This is resource intensive. We're still seeing more and more literature being uh, put out in terms of using ECMO in the emergency department. Uh, but I think it is possible. And I think that in the next five to 10 years, 
the next time you have a cardiac arrest patient, you may be calling your CT surgeons rather than your cardiologists because this may be the treatment that buys your patient time to get them to the OR, to the cath lab, or even just to um, recovery. So something to think about. And again, if you want to do this, talk to your doctors upstairs. Talk to your intensivists. Create a team so that when this patient does roll into your ED, you can have a fast and efficient process to get them on VA ECMO as soon as possible. And lastly, like we said before, the better patient selection you have, the better outcomes. So I want to, I want to leave you with this. Just consider this as a possible option for your next patient with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. It may not be prime time yet, but I think in the next five to ten years, you may see it in your emergency department soon. So thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. I'll take any questions in the back.